DJ and PK, it's time to talk basketball with our insider, Steve Cleveland. He joins us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. You can visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Well, Steve, obviously there's only one Michael Jordan. And there's only one Kobe, and you're not going to coach those guys. But I'm curious watching episodes seven and eight, where they really get into Jordan's competitiveness and how that um, led him to treat his teammates at times, and other times is great, but other times they're walking on eggshells around him, and they went into a whole fight with Kerr and all that. And I'm curious, even if it's on a lower level, it's college, not the NBA, and someone's got a fraction of the talent of uh, Jordan, when you were recruiting guys... Did you see guys with the leadership and see AAU practices or high school practices or just talking to a guy and hearing stories about him? They're like, this guy has a leadership thing and everybody won't like him, but we need somebody like that on the team? Or can you not really get into that? It just kind of evolves on its own. No, I think, especially back in the day when you know we were watching guys play all summer, and uh, then during the course of the year, you, you got to learn a lot about players. And, and you know, a lot of times you'd go to a practice and watch somebody in high school and you'd talk to his teammates. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what the NBA does. You know, they're, as they're recruiting and looking at draft picks and things, they, they talk to everybody. You know, they're talking to the family, they're talking to friends, teammates, finding everything you can potentially find out about that young man. And, I, and we did that. In, we did that in college all the time. I mean, I I talked to the assistant coaches. I talked to the trainers. You know, what kind of team is he a good teammate? You know, what are, what are his strengths and weaknesses? Because especially once you start, I, I know I know at BYU once we started getting the players we wanted to get, it was important to to get the complementary players right. It was important to you know to not just destroy the chemistry of a team by getting a personality. So, you know, if, if a player had a personality and you understood that and he was, he was really good uh, on the floor, sometimes, you know, you took, you took a chance or two. You know, I think this will work. You know? But you had to always be conscious of the chemistry of your team and the people you brought in. And I think everybody that's coached long enough knows that they had teams that had great chemistry and those that didn't. And sometimes, especially at our level, I mean, in high school, it's one thing. Junior college, where oftentimes you just kind of get who you get. But in college, you, you get the chance to pick the guys you want to be in your program. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I think there are moments when you look back and go, that may not have been a good fit. But then again, you know, most of the time it was. And you're dealing with kind of alpha, pretty personalities, and you have to make sure that there's a mixture there of personalities so that, there is that chemistry, and you get that togetherness. Even though there, there's going to be an alpha dog that's going to have, you know, and I've had a lot of teams I've had had a really dominant, strong personality guy, and uh, and you just you just have to work through that, and and you have to talk to your team about it, and you can't ignore it because if you ignore it, then it festers. And and then you do. I mean, anybody that's coached for a long period of time is going to have guys have fights in practice things it's it's intense and the pressures of winning and just the fatigue of a season you have to manage that as a coach and and your assistant coaches really have to manage that and you i mean a head coach can't do all that assistant coaches have to deal with that in the locker room on the road whatever it might be so that you don't become a distraction and hurt the team but 
the best teams I ever had were teams when there were fights and practices occasionally. There were uh, words said after games when we lost. And uh, it, it didn't destroy the chemistry of the team. What it did, it brought us together. But there was some accountability. Uh, and you have to have that accountability. And, and when teams are player-led, then you know you have special teams. It's just the coaching staff who's trying to control the environment. It, you never really reach your full potential. So, uh, yeah, you, I mean, you got to have that. I think to be really, really good, and, and I look back and think of five or six seasons that were really special, there was – it wasn't necessarily a Michael Jordan talent-wise. It was somebody that had a mindset like him that had an impact on that team. So, yeah, I, you got you got to have it, but you also got to manage it. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important is that the coaches can only do so much. And you saw and you were seeing here as we review this with the Bulls is that Jordan had no issue in terms of getting on guys, even to the point of punching them in the face, literally. And that might be the most extreme example. But, you know, we've seen with this Scott Burrell. He's up there talking about this guy, and he's got some ability, And but, you know, he's got to have the drive. How much do you need the guys to do it, or the guys? Say, like, in, in your case, we're in a BYU, Travis Hansen was, I, I deem that he was the best player on your team at the time. And how much do you need that type of player, which could be tricky, but need him to be able to call out other guys, too? Because I can remember one time he was whining to me about one of your guys not stepping up. Oh, no. I mean, listen, Travis was – he was one of those guys. I mean, he, he was – he wanted the ball in his hands. He, he wanted it. In, in difficult situations, and he did demand those things, and he did it. And he, he was appropriate. I mean, uh, Travis Hansen is one of the most competitive people that I have ever coached, and I have coached some really competitive people over the over the thirty-seven, thirty-eight years I coached. And Travis had that ability to really, really get the guys. And you're talking about a perfect example of player-led teams. Uh, he had he had the ability to go into a practice. After you're in the dog days of practice and you don't feel like you don't want to be there, guys have been in school all day, it's finals week, whatever the circumstances are, he could bring the best out of everybody. And he was not afraid of letting guys know that they got to step up and do things. And um, you know, Travis is one of the great leaders that, that I coach, and, and I've, I've shared that with him and shared it with others, that uh, he, he is the uh, essence of what a player-led team is. And you have to have leadership. And, and, and you know what? It's hard for a leader, it's hard for a player to lead when he's not the best player. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of great leadership in guys that weren't the best players, but the best teams, your best players are the leaders. And they don't, they don't shrink from it. They want that. They, you know, you get in the huddle, they're the ones, you know, the, the best example is that you get in the huddle and things aren't going well, you call a timeout. And a lot of times the coaches will go and chat for a little bit. And then that, that leader, that team leader, that alpha personality is right there in guys' faces telling them, hey, this is what we got to do. Da, da, da. And we come back in there. And that, that makes for the best teams. And so, yeah, Travis was a great example of that. And, you know, and, and I, I know in the early years, uh, McKelly Wesley was a young man that was, you know, people saw him off the court. He's mild mannered, but he was intense. You know, and uh, you, 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 even a Trent Whiting, who really wasn't with us, but for for a year came in as a transfer and had to sit a little bit. Again, had a really strong personality, 
And we didn't have great depth on that team, but we had really, really good leadership. And, uh, and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's why they were successful. It's why they were able to kind of turn that program around because of those personalities. And Travis was a younger player even then. But Travis made his presence known real early. And then his junior and senior years, he dominated. I mean, he dominated on the floor. Guys respected him. And uh, so you got to have that. You don't have that. You don't have that culture. Uh, it's it's really hard to to get to where you're actually playing to your potential. You know, leadership. People give coaches a lot of credit. I think the great coaches are the ones that found, figured out how to delegate that responsibility of leadership to their best players. And some people don't want to embrace that. You know, I, I, Terrell Day was a young man that that most people don't know in the community. He coached. He played for me for two years. He came. Out of, out of Fresno as a junior college player, may, may be the smartest player I've ever coached. And uh, he came in, and here's an African-American young man coming into Provo, Utah, never been there before, and he's just a great, skilled guy. And is as competitive, as tough a guy can you can be. But he, he didn't want that mantra. I mean, don't get me wrong. He, he was a competitor and as intense as they got, our best defender. But that's not what he wanted. In it wasn't him. He, he he wouldn't be true to himself. You know, or other guys on that team like Trav and McKelly and Trent that that had that kind of alpha in him. He he just wanted to play. And uh, and it you, you know we couldn't have we couldn't have won the Mountain West Conference that year and won that tournament and got the NCAA without Terrell Day. So not everybody needs. You don't need a team of guys like that. But you do need one or two. And when you have it and you have talent, and you you're usually going to be pretty good. You know, when you look at uh, college basketball now, there's so many guys transferring between schools, and there are so many guys leaving, not just for the NBA, but for pro basketball. So that could be G League, two, two-way contracts, playing in Europe. There's all kinds of scenarios. And then you look at some of the local and regional teams we followed this last year. Obviously, the Cougars had three seniors who provided this thing you were talking about. Sam Merrill, the best player at Utah State, right? Set the tone. This is what we're going to do and everybody knew it. Um, there was no doubt he was getting the ball for the last shot in the Mountain West Conference Tournament. Everybody knew that. In the Pac-12, you look at what uh, Pritchard at Oregon did for them as a senior and the big shots and the big plays he made in big moments. So the schools that can hold on to seniors, especially if you keep them in the program now, you know, Jake Toulson changed programs, and, and obviously he had a big impact. But, man, if you can keep those guys, because it takes a while to develop that leadership you're talking about. Oh, there's no question about that. And, and having seniors, um, you know, the funny thing is, I think it was Bill Self during this last year, you know, he was talk- he'd gotten beat by a team, and he said, listen, he says, we have great players. We have pros. You're right. But the guys that we're playing have been in that program for four years. And, you know, a fourth-year senior in the, the Big 12, they're, they're as good or better than guys that are one-and-dones and going to be playing in the NBA. I mean, and not just at the talent level, but the emotional level, the mental level, the preparation level. So when, when you have seniors, and then BYU is a great example of that this year, Utah State, same thing, where you have veteran-type players, it's you know the transfers can just change everything, and I think that that's what this this transfer portal. I mean that's really I mean for like for a BYU now with, with a transfer portal where you don't have you know guys aren't even having they're probably going to have to sit. It gives you a chance to bring guys in that you can you you know you've obviously talked to a lot of people, 
They're hungry. They want a new environment. They're going to be on their best behavior. And, and you're going to get a better player than you could get in any other circumstance. And so whoever it might be, and, and, and certainly Jake Tilson coming back and, and uh, getting the guard from Arizona, you know, you, that team got so much better with that experience, with that leadership. And so the portal's a huge thing. And if you go historically back to BYU, you know, they're, they're predominantly were, you know, bringing members of the church in, you know, guys from Utah and Arizona and California, predominantly, you know, 80% of the time would typically be members of the church. And you had the honor code and you had all the expectations. And uh, it was hard. It was sometimes difficult for a young man to come in as a freshman who was not a member of the church and spend four years and, uh, you know, kind of change his life. And not everybody's capable of doing that. And so consequently, mistakes are made and guys have to leave school. And, you know, that's, that's been going on at BYU for years. Now you're in a situation where you can get really talented guys that are good people and maybe have a value system. And, and now you, I can come into BYU and do the things I was supposed to do and go to school and be a good person and, you know, understand the honor code and, and, and keep it for a year. And all of a sudden you realize that portal becomes a huge asset to your program. And I, I think, you know, we recruited a lot of junior college guys because at the time we took the job, you know, Utah was getting pretty much all of the best in-state players. And we, we can't, we said, we, we're not going to beat them on those guys right now. When they're going to the final four, we better find JUCOs, transfers. And so, you know, I mean, we probably had 20, 20 transfers in the first two or three years there just trying to get competitive where we could get a really, really good Utah kid because there were always a lot of good Utah kids. And that kind of changed things. So uh, for me, I love to coach with a portal because, and I, I think that, you know, Mark and Chris, they, they have a pedigree and they can go out. They had a great first year. And they've got a lot of mileage out of a lot of transfers on that team. And at the end of the day, I don't think people really care anymore where the guys come from or they're a transfer, or you know, they don't have to spend four years in a portal. You find a way to have the best team every year, and, you, and you, if it's through the portal, or it's through junior college, or it's through whatever way it's going to be, uh, people have, you know, their memories <laughs> pretty short. You know, you, you get going, and they go, yeah, I like this. And I, I think the portal is a huge benefit to BYU uh, in terms of, how hard it is sometimes to get into that school, how hard it is sometimes to, to, be, to stay there and keep the rules and do the things you're supposed to do. Uh, and I think guys come in there confident that they can do it. And certainly, you know, you got facilities and support. And so I, I think the portal is a, a big part and will continue to be a big part of basketball, not just at BYU, but throughout the country. So you take a look at a program like Arizona that's dipped its basically its whole body in. I was going to say toes, but they've gotten more than that in terms of the one-and-done players. Uh, so this past season they have three guys who are freshmen that have made themselves for the draft, eligible for the draft, looking like they'll be uh, first-round picks. Three guys. They finished fifth in the conference. The year before, they don't make the playoff. And then the year before that, they've got DeAndre Ayton, who's the number one pick. And I think they get bounced in the first round. So they're going to have all this in terms of talent uh, at the pro level, but it didn't translate into what they're looking for. So do you think it's better to go for the grad transfer, as you say, 
as opposed to the one and done guy? Well, part of it depends what you know where you're at, what conference you're in, and those kinds of things. And, and certainly, if you're one of the ten elite. They're, they're, they're going to have opportunities to get the best players in the country and guys that are going to be pros in a year. I, I think, for, especially for mid-majors, you know, I think the portal serves them well. I mean, they're not likely to get a, a one-and-done guy. I mean, occasionally it happens, but it doesn't happen that often. And so, how, you know, what, is, what does your organization look like? Where are your priorities? I and mean, you sit down with your staff, and, and depending on where you start, you know, if you start with, okay, we got a total rebuild here, Here's our model for recruiting. Okay, the rebuild is over. Now we want to sustain this. What's what's the next best thing? And and I, you know, for for me, uh, my jobs were so different. And every job I had was a rebuild. I mean, it was a start over from high school, brand new school, junior college, complete rebuild. Uh, BYU, it was a it was a rebuild, but it rebuild in the sense of there just weren't any players in the program at that time. I mean, BYU's success over the years and. Every one of the guys that coached there has just been amazing and had lots of success and get the tournaments. But at that, that time and moment, it wasn't. And then at Fresno State, it was the same thing. So my model for recruiting initially uh, was to get the very best player we could get, whether it was a one-year transfer uh, and, and play a half a semester like Trent Whiting did or get a junior college guy that can come in. That's how we could, only, that's how we could be competitive. It was the only way we could do it. We couldn't go out and build it on high school seniors. And then when we got to at that point where we started winning, then we, we got into those homes. And we, and we actually could say, hey, we've got something viable here. You want to be a part of this? But now, uh, you know, if, if, if I had had the portal in that setting with some of those jobs, you know, and, and the Fresno job was completely different because we had all sorts of violations, you know, on probation. So that was a different dynamic that I was having to – to overcome there but for me I, w- I would love to be coaching right now with the portal and uh, we're, especially if they're going to do the you know don't have to sit out a year and uh, because it just opens everything up and now there's, there's more equal ground it doesn't matter if it's BYU and Duke anymore or BYU and Purdue or wh- whatever it might be uh, it's one kid and, and, and he, maybe he's more than likely been in a, a P5 program and wants to he wants to go somewhere else where he's comfortable, likes the guys or the coach or the weather or whatever it might be. But they're, they're going to be a lot. I mean, I think at one time there was six or 700 kids in the portal. And during, during the course of the last couple of years, man, that, that's an opportunity for you to recruit. And, uh, and I, I think, personally, I, I think it's, it's the best thing that could ever happen to mid-majors is that you have an opportunity now to get guys into your program uh, that can really help you. They've played three years. They're experienced. And say what you want about experience, but you take a really, really good freshman, and I'm not necessarily made a blue-chip All-American, but you take a really good freshman that a lot of the Pac-12s might get or, or the Big 12 or wherever, ACC, you take a fourth or a fifth-year guy who's played 90 or 100 games, I'm taking that guy. I'm taking that guy. So And, and then... Get them every year. You can get them every year. It's, not, it's no longer do I have to build this thing from the bottom. You can live off the portal, not for your whole team, but if you get one or two guys out of the portal every year, it just, it just helps that continuity of having experience in your program. 
So that's all about tapping into this uh, Jordan type factor, although it's Jordan light. We get that uh, at the college level. But at the pro level, whether you're the Jazz and you want Donovan Mitchell to watch all of these and to figure out what Jordan, you know, there was in, I think it was an episode five, some, maybe it was earlier though. Uh, I think it was BJ Armstrong said, you know, once Jordan figured out how to win that first time, he was unstoppable. That was like the last piece of the puzzle. So how does a young player, whether it's Donovan Mitchell here, or if it's Luka Doncic in Dallas or whoever, how do they figure out that last piece of the puzzle? I guess, how did Steph Curry do it at Golden State? What has to happen that you figure it out? Was it Curry being partnered with at the right point in his career, being partnered with Kerr, who could help him figure it out, because Kerr saw it with Duncan in San Antonio and Jordan in Chicago. How does that work for these young pro players? Because, you know, there's a few Jazz fans listening who are emotionally invested. Yeah, no, no, no question. You know, I mean, it, it, it takes more than... You, you take a Donovan Mitchell or a younger player in the, in the league who is, wants to get to that next level... Um, it, it requires to be surrounded by those kinds of people too, and, and I know everybody talked about Phil Jackson and how it didn't matter who coached that team. I, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> you know, I think that uh, the, the the mindset that's developed, the chemistry and the culture of, of, of a program, uh, the head coach has a lot to do with, and obviously everyone around him that's in that on that staff. And so I think those are things that that coaches have a responsibility to, I mean, Michael figured stuff out on his own, but he also had some really, really smart people around him. And I think the key thing is getting the right people around the right guys. And, and you, you, know, you just can't get the best player. That doesn't always work. You've got to get the best player that plays the best with this guy. And that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, that's, uh, you just don't sit down with a piece of paper and figure that out. You have to watch guys. And so when that draft comes and you're looking at people that are going to – how how will this guy play with a Donovan Mitchell? What kind? What will be the impact here? You're looking at those kinds of things, and, and, they, and they could be intangible type things or they could be on the floor type things. But I think Michael was surrounded by guys that he really felt like he could impact and get along with. And, and obviously everybody playing with Michael knew what a special talent he was. But I think the one thing that, that Michael was able to do is he was able to get guys to play on a level with, without – I mean, he, he did a lot of pointing fingers, and he, and he did get into guys and do those kinds of things. But I, I think they were patient guys. I mean, you, you look at Steve Curran and he's talking, you know, and, and, and these guys all know. They, they have maturity. They know how good Michael was. And I think it's you have to. I think the word that comes to my mind is you need to surround superstars like that with selfless people, and if they don't, they don't have a a big ego. And I mean, they're competitive and they want to win and they have a role. And when everybody knows their role and what those what's expected from the best player or the head coach, man, teams get better, and they don't try to do things outside of their role. And you got Michael, the playmaker. You got Scottie Pippen, the guy who can make plays. Dennis Rodman, he, he was the ultimate team guy. I mean, he, maybe most people think he had lots of flaws personally and all this and that, but you know what? He was a huge part of that team, as, as were spot-up shooters, you know, like Paxton and Kerr. They, they, they had to be a part of it. 
Michael didn't need three more All Stars. What I mean, and mind you, he had he had All Stars in that team, but at the end of the day, he needed the chemistry and guys that could play with him. And he was as much a head coach on that team as Phil was. And Phil is so smart. Phil's not a big. I mean, I'm not. I don't know Phil Jackson. I mean, I met him once, and he may have a huge ego. But when he coached, he coached the strengths of that team and put guys in places where they could be successful and created an offense where they could be successful. Where a six four, six five white guy that couldn't penetrate and beat somebody off the dribble, he knew would be open because of Michael's ability to attract two players or Scottie Pippen's ability to attack and kick. And I, and I just think a lot of that success has to do with the preparation and the selection of those types of players and surrounding guys with the right players. And, uh, and it didn't happen immediately, but once it did and they got everybody in the right spots on the right page, then it became really special. So it, Michael, Michael has a lot to do with uh, how he motivated and how he embraced and how he supported these guys. But Phil Jackson, I mean, he, he put the blueprint together, and he got guys in places where they can be most successful. And I think that's the key. Not everybody's going to be a three-point shooter. Not a, but, you know, sometimes kids in their minds, they want to they be the guy that handles the ball. They want to be the guy that shoots the three. And for great teams, sometimes you have to take a step back and accept a role and, uh, and put the best role guys around a, you know, a, a, a Donovan Mitchell, and uh, that makes him better and makes their team better. So those are the things as a coach that you're constantly scratching your head about and you're constantly talking about with your staff. You know, and listen, there were teams where, I, you know, I did not start the best five players. Uh, that happened a lot. And I, I used to get grief from that from some of the guys, that a player, a guy, why, you know, why is he starting? You want to know why he's starting? Because... His teammate is way better when he's in the game. And he does a little – I mean, you got to kind of explain it to 18 and 19 and 20-year-old guys. He said, just trust me here. Uh, this chemistry works. Now, who's playing at the end of the game? It's probably not that same group. But for every team I had, I, ha- I had five guys I knew that when the game was on the line, it wasn't the five best players. It was the five players who played the best together. And there was great chemistry. And, it, you know, sometimes guys that are more talented struggle with that. Why, why am I not in the game? Because I'm. This is gives this group gives us the best chance to win this game, and uh, and you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself, and you have to have that experience and respect to the your teammates and your, of your players. But good coaches, you know, they do that. I mean, that's what they do. They get the right people in the right place, and so to start a game, it's the same thing. You know, you're trying to find guys that play the best together, and and you're. You, you spend a lot of time figuring that stuff out, and it, it involves constant communication with the players, the coaches, being transparent, talking about these things, and ultimately the coach makes the final decision. And when, when you start winning, then guys buy into it, and they realize this is my role. You know, This is what I do. This is who I am. And the whole time, you know, in, in today's world, it's like, what are you doing to help me get to the next level? Well, you, you're working guys out. You know, you, they're getting an hour every day with – a personal trainer or coaches, you, you know, you're trying to make sure that they're happy about where they're going as a player, but at the same time that we ultimately are having the most success as a team. And so I, I know you have to placate everybody in this world, and but guys want to play at the next level, fine, I'm going to help you with individual skill work, I'm going to do those kinds of things, but there's the things you need to do for us as a team so we can get to the tournament. 
and win the conference championship or whatever it might be. Then you get that buy-in, then and you get guys buying into that. Now you got a player-led team, and everybody knows that the coaching staff wants the very best for them. And then the parents understand that. And then the AAU coach understands that. And then you don't have mass exodus at the end of each year with people transferring. Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. He's here every week on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Hey, you right, guys. Have a good week. DJ and PK brought to you by Syringa Networks, home to complete business telecom and IT solutions, backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. All right, coming up. 9 o'clock, Peter Baugh covers the Missouri Tigers for the Athletic. Our spring football tour continues. The Tigers are on BYU's schedule. And then Antonio Pierce, Arizona State Associate Head Coach, Co-Defensive Coordinator. ASU playing BYU in September and the Utes in November, if the schedule goes off as planned. We'll talk with Antonio Pierce at 9.30. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. A little breaking news from the world of sports. What will it mean for the NBA? What will it mean for Major League Baseball? I think you can read into it for both sports. We will tell you about that next. Stay with us. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. Kurt Heelan from NBC Sports and ProBasketballTalk.com. They've got to have minimum of three weeks of guys working out together and stuff. I think the shot will come back pretty quickly and the handles, but the conditioning, it's going to take time to get back into game shape and there's nothing, you know, that takes games. And it's just, I think, the teamwork. A team like Utah that's kind of a little more system-based and has guys, you know, back cuts and just, you know, cutting on offense and it's the way they handle their defense, that dance might take a little longer to get back in the flow of than Houston, where, hey, you know what? We're going to give James Harden the ball, and then we're going to get Val out of the way. The system's a little simpler. It might take some teams a little longer to get back in the flow. It feels like, to me, some of those teams would just take a little longer. Hanson Scotting. Weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK is brought to you by WCF Insurance, reminding you to be careful out there. PK spent part of the weekend watching Korean baseball while we were talking to Steve Cleveland. A story broke. English Premier League trying to come back. The UK government wants it back, which goes to what we were talking about earlier this morning, PK. Why would a government want sport back? Well, I guess they probably want the tax money off uh, all the dollars changing hands, so there's that. But also, and this is something neither you or I touched on earlier, but why would a government want sports back? We were talking, I was talking about the jobs, you were talking about the psychological pluses. Uh, Putting games on TV would make people a little happier, at least a portion of the population, a little happier about staying home and not being out uh, spreading it. And... In England, obviously, the English Premier League, their top soccer league, is going to keep everybody at home. I think that American sports leagues will copy this if it's successful. They've got the same challenge the NBA has. you got the season, you know, 80% done. How do you finish it? Uh, and they're going to be playing without crowds, apparently. And Major League Baseball has the roster sizes. If the English Premier League can pull this off, then Major League Baseball can probably pull off 80 games or whatever they're going to try to fit in. So whether it's Korean baseball, Taiwanese baseball, or whatever, who's got an idea? Who can you borrow or steal from to get Major League Baseball and the NBA going again? 
I think they're going to come up with their ideas that are best for them. I don't know that they're going to necessarily steal stuff. You're going to just take stuff that's out there and what is best for your particular league. It's going to come back. I'm convinced more than ever. We can't go on like this much longer. It, they're all coming back. Don't don't you worry, my good friend. They're all, they're all coming minute. back. It's the anti-Rick Patino. What? Well, LeBron, Giannis, Kawhi Leonard are walking through that door. Well, I, I just worry about LeBron because if he goes outside, apparently his life is in jeopardy, according to the tweet that he had. So we we need to make sure that you know he's safe there. But as far as sports is, is concerned, he's coming back. If if David James Sniggledorf the third can go get a haircut, then I think we can throw a ball around a little bit. <laughs> Masked up, getting the haircut. Don't how'd snip a, the mask. How'd you get a haircut, man? I thought you were in lockdown completely. Well, that's what you get for making assumptions, PK. You went out? I did. You went out last night? Uh, I went to work last night. I got my hair cut Saturday. That's a Kenny Chesney tune. Oh, didn't know it. <laughs> went out last night. Sing it, Yuck. I know that song. There's too much PK singing and me singing. We need some no, you singing. No, we don't singing. need me singing. <laughs> Come on, Yak. I can sing. I'm not just holding on to it to make fun of you guys later. I can tell you that much. Fine. Yeah, the song uh, includes him talking about how he's out and he's BSing some chicks. You know, he's making his resume seem a lot more impressive than it actually is. (laughs) (laughs) It's a classic. (laughs) Well, you look great with your haircut. It was good to have Sniggy back. Doesn't sound very genuine, PK. It is totally genuine. That's important <laughs> to you. Your hair is important to you. And that it's cut and it's trimmed and it's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's absolutely it. This, that was, forget the English Premier League, which, believe me, I do more than you'll ever know. But to have you back looking the way you normally look, yeah, that, that's a step. If the snakes can go out and get his hair cut, then it's only a matter of time before freedom is restored. <laughs> freedom! <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly I'm Scottish. Sir William I, Wallace. I hope you tipped well. Absolutely. You're dang right. <laughs> yeah, and good. Good. We need, it, we need it back. I need more than just Jordan. I, I need all this stuff returning as soon as it can. Uh, that's just the way it is. One of the things that I saw from watching the Jordan thing, and I, I had to laugh as it related to the Jazz, is he's just getting on teammates literally left and right. I mean, and he's punching guys, at least one guy, in the face. Uh, and they go on, and they win titles. And, and here, somehow we're supposed to believe that Gobert and Mitchell's relationship is unsalvageable. <laughs> I got Jordan, just Jordan. What I like is like everybody and punching him in the face. What I like is Jordan is like twenty years later. The thing that really bugs him, you could just kind of see it in his face and his voice. He goes, "Yeah, I know. I punched the smallest guy on the team. <laughs> Pick on somebody your own size. It resonates even with MJ." <laughs> yeah, and here these two were supposed to believe their relationship was unsalvageable. For what? Over what? I don't get it. It never made sense to me. 
Why would it be unsalvageable when Jordan's dropping guys? <laughs> <laughs> Why did Kerr punch him in the chest? Was it too far up? Is he too much taller? Well, I don't think Kerr is an idiot. He didn't want to punch Jordan in the face. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah, that was just so. Is that because he didn't want Jordan to crush him, or he was worried what the team would do if he hit Jordan in the face? Yeah, if you hit or Jordan he's worried in what the Jordan face. would do if Jordan. I think there's just a whole cavalcade of issues if you would have actually struck him in the face. Yeah, suppose he, I mean, one man swings at another man. Uh, you never know what's going to happen, what's going to be the end result, depending on where you hit him. And. Who knows what the injury could have been, whereas if I hit you in the chest, you know, obviously uh, probably not going to be near as dangerous if I hit you in the face. Uh, so you got that thing going on, that dynamic. I don't think Steve Kerr knew his role, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and so he he understood that, hey, I, I better be careful here. But Jordan just hauls off and pops him. And, you know, he felt bad about it, and he wanted the guy's phone number right away. Uh, so there is a little humanity in Jordan that I took from that. But these types of things, and it's with the jazz, and every little thing becomes big news, you know. And they try to keep everything so secret. And so the most minute thing, not necessarily this is minute, but the most minute thing becomes bigger if you're trying to hide it from me, you know. And, and so they had a little whatever call, a disagreement, a spat, and one guy, which we don't even really know for sure, maybe we do, and I've just missed it, who gave what to whom as far as this virus thing, and now that seems like uh, a long time ago, and both guys are feeling fine and be able to get on. But to say it was unsalvageable, is that just the world we live in today as far as the media, and the media's got to come up with stuff? And so they get a quote from somebody because there's more media in a sense than ever. And, you know, the, the, the days of one or two beat writers or three or four, depending on where you live, that's out the door. I mean, it's, it's national and all this stuff, plus these other things. And they determine that it's unsalvageable. And that word, that, that's such a loaded word. And what, what really, what relationships outside of Hollywood marriages, are, are guaranteed to be unsalvageable. I don't know that there are many, but yet that's the word we used. And to somebody's credit, certainly Joe, Joe Ingalls has no problem making fun of that, using that word, unsalvageable. And you just look at Jordan, what was going on. Nothing was unsalvageable there, so why would I think this is over here? DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. And now, your Rocky Mountain Chevy dealer's strong play of the weekend. How could this have happened? Well, he'd been logging some pretty heavy hours. First one in in the morning, last one to leave at night. That kid was a human dynamo. Are you sure you're talking about George? You are Mr. and Mrs. Costanza. What the hell did you trade Jay Buna for? He had 30 home runs and over 100 RBIs last year. He's got a rocket for an arm. 
Yeah, it was a good prospect, no question about it. But my baseball people love Ken Phelps bat. They kept saying, Ken Phelps, Ken Phelps. Chevy Strong play of the game. We got no game, so we had to add live a little bit. And there is Jerry Stiller playing George Costanza's dad, Frank. He passed away at the age of 92, natural causes. It's all over social media this morning. And Jay Buhner is now trending, thanks to that right there. I don't know if Jay Buhner expected to be trending on Twitter today. There's always some great Frank Costanza quotes. We've really did one with sports related to it. All right. Know that quote today at 450 on the big show and winning you with fabulous prizes. That's all well and good on Jay Buhner, but let's not forget Ken Phelps. And the reason why we're not forgetting Ken Phelps is because he played his college ball at ASU. And there it is. It all comes full circle to the Sun Devils. And not a moment too soon, because coming up at 9.30, Antonio Pierce from ASU, the associate head coach, co-defensive coordinator, is going to join us on our spring football tour with ASU playing BYU and Utah on their 2020 schedule. Did you know that Ken Phelps went to uh, ASU? I absolutely did not. Left to my own devices, those words would have never crossed my lips, but thank goodness you are here to bring everything back to the Devils. I actually, as good as he was on Seinfeld, I liked him better on uh, King of Queens. Didn't he have a bigger role on King of Queens? You can argue, certainly, yes. But I thought that he just, yeah, Arthur, uh, what was the last name, Spooner or something? Something like that. I I just know him as Arthur. And he lived downstairs. Correct. Yes, with uh, uh, Kevin James and what's the other chick? What's her name? Uh, the the daughter or the wife in this case, Carrie. Uh, what was her name? She's the one who Leah. Got a, is it? Oh yeah, Remini. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, of course, she broke out on the scene on Saved by the Bell, the greatest of all sitcoms, and then went on to do the Carrie thing. Uh, but I thought Jerry played. A, more, a funnier and certainly more prominent. So that's probably, you're right, that's probably what it was, is that it was more prominent. Uh, and my kind of guy, because he always seemed to be yelling. <laughs> yelling and sarcastic. I mean, they, you know, how do you, how do you get by without yelling and being sarcastic? I wouldn't have any idea. DJ PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone, the spring football tour with Peter Baugh. Covers the Missouri Tigers for The Athletic. We'll talk with him next, Antonio Pierce at 930. Stay with us.